My name is Dr. Chris Jenkins, and I am the CEO of the Oriane Society and the host of the Snake Talk Podcast, the podcast where you learn about nature's most feared, maligned, and persecuted animals. I invite you to listen to this conversation, and maybe you'll find that what you perceive as fear is actually rooted in a deep fascination. Welcome to the Snake Talk Podcast. I am sitting here with Robert Hill. Uh, Robert works at Zoo Atlanta, and we're going to hear a lot more about what he uh, actually does there. Uh, But I've known Robert now for, I don't even know, a long time, probably somewhere in the ballpark of of 10 years. Uh, And, you know, both he and the zoo, they've just been incredible partners you know, in indigo snake conservation and, you know, I've been working on conservation projects, uh, you know, really a wide range of conservation projects around the region and beyond. So um, Zoo Atlanta is just a great partner uh, to have to work on on snake conservation. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Robert. How are you? Uh, thanks, Chris. I'm doing great. Uh, it's nice to be here chatting with you. Yeah. So, uh, so I mentioned... You work at the zoo. What's your so? What's your title now? Uh, I'm now the curator of herpetology uh, at, at Zoo Atlanta. I just recently got that title just before the end of the year, but prior to that was associate curator. It's kind of a you know title change and move up, uh, but basically over the entire herpetology department at the zoo. Uh, excellent. Well, congratulations on the new new role. And uh, I do want to hear, we'll we'll get to that. I want to hear what a curator at Zoo Atlanta does. And, uh, but we'll get into that when we talk a little bit more uh, about the zoo. First, I'd like to hear, uh, you know, this is kind of a, a, an interest that if we look at the broader, you know, society that a lot of people would think was a little bit odd, meaning having an interest in, in reptiles, amphibians, snakes. And, uh, so just, I like to hear how people ended up getting into it. Were you, is this something that started when you were a child or something that kind of hit you later in life? How how did that all come about? Uh, yeah, I was, you know, uh, like many of us in this, uh, in the herpetology field and profession, um, I was that kid from as long as I could remember running around outside, picking an knolls off of the trees and catching tree frogs and, you know, putting them in little jars for a day or two so I could watch what they do. Um, and that just kind of blossomed over time. My, my mom was wonderful. She would indulge me, uh, to a point <laughs> and get, uh, you know, any hurt magazines, books, um, anything I could find. Uh, to read and kind of fill my brain with about uh, reptiles and amphibians, uh, even to the point of convincing one of the keepers at the St. Augustine alligator farm when I was young to take me behind the scenes to meet rattlesnakes and and all of that, which um, if you know my mom and her fear of snakes was a pretty huge step (laughs) for her to do for her kids. So So did you grow up in Florida? (laughs) Did you grow up originally from North, uh, originally from North Florida around Jacksonville? And we moved up here to the Atlanta area uh, when I was just eight years old. So been here in, in Georgia for a long time, but I definitely have the roots down in, in North Florida. And certainly easy place to walk out in the afternoon and find some frogs and, and lizards when you're a little kid. <laughs> yeah. So when you were growing up then, you know, those later years in Atlanta, did you have the opportunity to, uh, to go to the zoo that you now work at? I did. Uh, I didn't get to go, you know, a lot. We lived a little bit of ways away from the zoo, but uh, all the chances I could get, I went to the zoo. Uh, Chattahoochee Nature Center as well uh, was a big influence when I was when I was young. And just talking to, you know, the various people that worked at the zoo and the nature centers that I got to visit um, really just kind of helped mold this idea of wanting to work with reptiles and amphibians. Um, Although, unfortunately, I went through a phase where I was given the idea that there's no way you could make a livable wage doing it. 
there may still be some argument to that, <laughs> but, um, you know, those of us that have been through everything we've been through to get where we are, for sure, you go through some periods of uh, really working hard and struggling. But, uh, yeah, eventually, um, you know, I went, when I was in school, it was for graphic design and not for uh, biology or herpetology at all. But I did stay connected to that. I had a few animals at home. I was very interested in just seeing animals in the wild, particularly salamanders. And where I lived as a teenager, we had a creek, you know, in the yard. So I was in there almost every day, you know, looking at duskies and red salamanders and such. And um, eventually uh, learned through various series of happenstances that I could actually make a career uh, in herps and taking care of herps and then ultimately getting involved in the conservation of herps, both uh, here in Georgia or the Southeast and internationally. And um, glad I had that opportunity and met the right people and made the right choices to get here. Hmm. So when you were a kid and, and you were visiting Zoo Atlanta and you were in the reptile house, could you have ever imagined working there? Is that something that was in your head or, uh, you know, and then no. in either case, how do you look, <laughs> how do you look back on that now? Are you kind of like, uh, you know, how, how's that influenced you today? The fact that you, that you went there as a child. Uh, well, I mean, it is pretty amazing to, to work in a place that I had a lot of admiration for, you know, um, going to the zoo and at that time seeing, you know, all of these animals that just existed as, you know, at, at my age, I guess, uh, you know, as drawings or black and white photos uh, in a lot of the books that I had. So it was really cool seeing these things live and, and up close. Um, and then now it is pretty amazing to look back on that and also look on the changes that have occurred in, in the zoo field since that time. Um, it's been pretty amazing. And yeah, I'm, I'm definitely grateful to have it, I guess, maybe had, uh, I don't know if it, it would count, but maybe a, a, a very early interview at a very young age <laughs> during some of the people. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Great. Well, so now I'm curious, uh, you know, cause I didn't, you know, we work together and it's, you know, there's a lot of overlap in what a zoo might do or an organization like ours or even an agency, but I kind of had a slightly different trajectory getting where I am. And I've always, it, it always seemed similar though, to being, uh, you know, say a wildlife biologist or becoming somebody who works in a reptile house, a keeper up to a curator, like, like you currently are. Um, it, it, like you really had to pay your dues. Like it, you know, it's, it's a job that a lot of people want and there are, mm -hmm. you know, it's a supply demand. There's just a huge demand right. for jobs to be a wildlife biologist out in the, whatever the forest studying animals. And there's also a huge demand for uh, taking care of animals in zoos. And uh, so uh, the supply of, of those positions nowhere meets the demand. And so I just remembered hearing about like, I think you guys call them docents and this whole mm -hmm. concept of, you know, we have the same thing here and, you know, in the wildlife biology realm, you know, people really have to work hard and spend a lot of dedicated time. Like there's a lot of years where, you know, you're tempted to get off of, of that climb and go do something else with your life. So anyways, I'm curious how one becomes a curator uh, you know, of herpetology at Zoo Atlanta or other zoos. Kind of what was that process for you? And, and is that typical for for most people that kind of sit in your position today? Um, well, I will say probably my road to getting into a curator position in a zoo is not the typical uh, route, or I would say not the typical route these days. Um, you know, I... As I said, I did go to school uh, briefly. I'm a college dropout. I do not recommend it. <laughs> I wish I had finished and <laughs> wish I'd gone back. Um, but, you know, I, I managed to kind of, you know, really work, as you said, pay your dues. Um, you know, always kept that interest in herpetology. And once I realized over time that, hey, there may be 
a further career and a more enriching life than just having a few of these critters at home and then going out into the field and helping, uh, you know, actual wildlife biologists study them and doing field surveys uh, with them and, and bio blitzes and all those kind of things, which I was doing. It really changed, you know, my life. It became much more a, um, I guess, a mission to try and move up from where I was. I worked uh, at some pet stores, so I got a lot of really hard uh, hands-on experience in the care of the animals uh, that I would ultimately be caring for here at the zoo. And that part, I think, really did help propel me, you know, lacking a lot of people in zoo careers definitely have an educational background. A lot of curators are, um, you know, masters or PhD uh, folks. Um, but I think on my side, and this is not to take away from that, I think those there are people doing amazing work uh, throughout the zoo field, and of course, all of wildlife biology. Um, but I got a slight edge going into the keeper field once I was given an interview at the zoo. Uh, just for the sheer experience and vast amount of different species that I had worked with in, um, you know, in human care, as opposed to, you know, having just know their their biology in the wild, which, um, sorry about my headphone there, um, which is definitely, you know, slightly different things. And you, after getting into the zoo field, then I got more opportunities to get into the into the wildlife biology field a bit and get out and actually see what the animals do in the wild and see what they eat and see the habitats they live in. And that definitely changed my perspective on what we do and how we manage them. And I think anyone who has that opportunity, if you are in the zoo field, it changes and makes you so much better uh, of an animal caretaker uh, when you can get out and really see what these animals do in the wild. Great. So you kind of had this alternative route working in the pet industry, we'll say for, for a while and mm -hmm. then get going directly into a, a keeper position. And like you said, you didn't have like maybe academic, uh, credentials of some other people these days, but what nowadays, what's a more typical route for somebody who wants to work in a zoo, maybe ultimately wants to become a curator. Um, what would that typical route be these days? Uh, I would say, you know, definitely a lot of a lot of paying dues doing, you know, you kind of alluded to it before, but um, doing internships or, um, you know, apprenticeships. Uh, there are definitely some zoo focused courses at various colleges around the country as well, doing some of those courses, volunteering or being a docent at a zoo, getting involved directly with uh, working in animal areas at, at the zoo or various nature centers and such, getting that hands-on piece. And a lot of our, the animal staff do come in with, with at least uh, bachelor's degrees in uh, biological or um, you know, usually biological sciences. So um, it's not, a lot of places it's not a requirement. A lot of zoos it is uh, to have that, back, that academic background. Um, but certainly if you have both pieces where you've got the hands-on piece and the academic background, it definitely helps. And Zoo Atlanta's got a huge um, research component to it. And we do a lot of research with uh, herps. So having an academic background definitely does help with being able to tie into some of the research programs that are going on uh, at a zoo like ours. Mm -hmm. So, gotcha. and over time, just working for years and moving up the chain essentially. Yeah. Is there a lot of, uh, it, it, maybe both of these are fruitful, but is it typically more fruitful to get embedded at a particular institution and work your way up there? Or is there a lot of, you know, say maybe it's even more fruitful, you know, people are, are, are more apt to hire people from other places, meaning so you're at Zoo Atlanta, and then you end up to move up, you go to St. Louis, and then from there to move up, you go to San Diego. Is, is one more fruitful than the other? Do they both kind of happen equally or? Yeah, it, it's, it's kind of an equal thing. It really depends. It tends a lot on the institution. And one of the things, particularly in herpetology departments, and I guess this just has something with herps and herp 
people being overall fairly patient people or and or maybe stubborn's the better word but uh herp folks tend not to move around a lot in zoos um so once someone gets into a position there's usually generally speaking not a super high turnover um, because people want to be in these positions they want to be where they are so if your goal is to really move up uh, chances are you would have to move to another institution to kind of get onto that next step. Um, and certainly a lot of institutions will promote within if a position is available, which is ultimately how I moved up at Zoo Atlanta without having to, you know, bounce around a lot of different places across the country. I was very lucky in that way. Um, but certainly other facilities have that. It just really depends on their situation and staffing at whatever positions you're trying to move up into at that I guess at that given point in time. Yeah. I, you know, I've heard the word docent. We both said that earlier. I've heard it for so long and I guess I don't know what a docent is. So like you mentioned volunteers or docents, I always picture docents as volunteers. Um, so what is a docent? Um, I'll do my best to explain that the, the quick and dirty explanation is it's kind of like, the difference between frogs and toads, that all toads are frogs, but not all frogs are toads. Uh, same idea with okay. docents and volunteers. All docents are volunteers, but not all volunteers are docents. <laughs> um, okay. Docents typically um, typically are the ones, there are a lot of outwardly facing folks. So they'll be out on zoo grounds, talking to guests, teaching them about conservation, pointing them around the zoo. Um, volunteers will certainly do that as well, but they may be more involved in some behind the scenes work, helping the keeper staff out, or, um, maybe involved in some other aspect of running the zoo, uh, in a volunteer capacity. If that makes Yeah, no, that makes sense. sense. I'm assuming docent isn't specific to zoos. I'm assuming I'm just showing my, uh, clear lack of, of the English language, but I'm assuming this, that's a word for positions in a lot of different businesses. Absolutely. Absolutely. Museums yeah. have docents. Um, I think generally any kind of like, uh, educational type institution is going to have, uh, docents in okay. some form or fashion. Right. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about zoo atlanta and we'll we'll start kind of course and then we'll we'll kind of hone in over uh, the rest of the episode all the way down to to some of the projects you're working on um you know on animals in the wild but so to start uh i mean obviously the zoos in atlanta is in the city of atlanta but kind of describe where the zoo is how big it is how it compares to other institutions around the country in terms of that, the, you know, the experience of someone visiting the zoo. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, Zoo Atlanta is located in Grant Park, uh, which is just a little ways outside of downtown Atlanta. Um, it's been there since 1895. Uh, essentially, I won't go into the entire history of the zoo because it's pretty long, but Uh, It essentially started as a traveling circus that basically kind of ended up in Grant Park uh, with a small menagerie and uh, ended up staying there. And over time, uh, developed into the various iterations that have led us to where we are today as a really well-respected, pretty modern institution. Um, We work really hard on progressing and being innovative with animal welfare and uh, new habitats. We've, over the last, I guess, gosh, 10 plus years, I've been back at the zoo. Uh, we have been doing new uh, renovated habitats for animals just about every couple of years, uh, pretty massive renovations that really benefit the welfare of our animals, uh, including, you know, uh, the new, new-ish reptile facility that was opened in 2015, Scaly Slimy Spectacular. Um, our new elephant habitats. It's a it's a pretty fantastic institution. Where I alluded to this before, but we are highly respected when it comes to uh, research. We've always been, I guess, pretty much since the zoo. Um, sorry, excuse me. My dogs are barking up there. Um, since the zoo no kind of switched over to becoming uh, to becoming a nonprofit organization, we um, 
have really just expanded and gone crazy with getting more involved in conservation and getting involved with research. Uh, just in the past year alone, we had 16 peer-reviewed publications come out um, with zoo staff, uh, zoo team members as authors. So pretty, yeah. pretty impressive there. So it's great. It's a great yeah. facility. Um, it's always hard to compare to other zoos, you know, um, especially because, you know, those are our colleagues and people we work with. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, we're, I think we're a pretty darn good facility and a lot of zoos around the country certainly are as well. Um, but I, I think we rank pretty high, but I'm biased. <laughs> I just want to take a quick break and uh, tell you guys that snakes are one of the most persecuted groups of animals in the world. Unfortunately, most snakes that encounter people end up dead, but the Orient Society is dedicated to changing that. Go to www.orian.org to learn more and join the effort to stop the persecution. Yeah, that's that's where I would that's where I was going is and you know speaking of generalities, not trashing one zoo over another, but I mean I put yeah, Atlanta in one of the you know that top tier uh, of zoos in the country um, on a lot of fronts. So and uh, you know their reptiles and, and snake displays are, are phenomenal. Um, so I want to talk about some of the, uh, in particular, some of the snake species. Uh, that people could expect to see. But before we kind of run through some of that, how, you know, some zoos have moved to this model uh, where it, as opposed to like taxonomically distributed displays, it's more like say ecosystem based. You might have like a mm -hmm. jungle world and a desert and, you know, or, or African savanna, And, you know, and, and so if you wanted to see the rock Python, you'd have to go over to the Africa exhibit, say, um, if people were coming to zoo Atlanta and wanted to see, uh, the snakes are the, the bulk of those housed in, in the reptile facility, or do you have them distributed in different areas of the zoo? Yeah, the majority of our our, our herp collection um, is is housed in uh, the the herp building, Scaly Slimy Spectacular, and we have a small building adjacent to that called Georgia Extremes, which focuses all on Georgia native species. So yeah, if you're coming to the zoo and or if you're coming to Zoo Atlanta and you're expecting to see herps, you're pretty much going to see almost all of them in one place. We do have a couple of satellite habitats on other parts of the zoo. Uh, for our Komodo dragon and some of the tortoises. And then we also have ambassador animals that are on display at different times uh, in the ambassador animal habitats on the other end of the zoo as well. Uh, but we don't manage those in the herpetology department. Okay, great. Well, so what, uh, we'll, we'll kind of leave the, well, I've got two more questions about the zoo and then mm -hmm. I really want to get into um, some of the conservation work that, that you're doing. But um, so, First, like I, like I just mentioned, like if people come to the zoo, just, just kind of run off some of the, the species of snakes that they could expect to see. And if there's any superlatives there, oh, the biggest of that or an albino <laughs> this or whatever, you know, just the really yeah. rare tree such and such. Um, right. Yeah. Um, gosh, I would say, you know, one of the coolest things, but as soon as you walk into um, the, the larger part of the hurt building, we have two slender snouted crocodiles, uh, that kind of greet you right there, usually right by the door. Um, those are pretty impressive. Uh, they're not especially large at the moment, but they can get quite big, but, um, those are really cool and fantastic to work with. We've got a right about 18 foot ish plus give or take, you know, with snake measurements, but uh, reticulated Python that is visible. That's uh, pretty amazing to see as far as super rare things we do have um we do have mangshan vipers um, we're actually in the midst of renovating an exhibit for those so we'll have those back on here uh just about any any time uh hopefully by the time this comes out <laughs> they'll be yeah they'll be on so are you making like a new renovated space are you making like a rocky cliffy type habitat for them or what's mm -hmm. that gonna look like 
Oh, cool. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty interesting. So we had, you know, it's a, it's a new building, and one of the things it's just like having a new house. You know, you, as you live in it for a while, you start finding some things that aren't quite exactly what you thought they would be, or something just needs a little a little tune up. So we had an exhibit that was fully aquatic, this very deep water thing. And over time, we just kind of ran into, you know, little problem after little problem that evolved into big problem. And we did a full renovation talking with our senior team and our excellent facilities crew to basically completely redo it and make it into a rock wall um, exhibit for the Mangshan Vipers. Um, it's, it's massive. Um, I think that going to give them a ton of space to work with. We do have a male and female pair, so we are very hopeful once we get them in there uh, that we can hopefully see some reproduction. That would be amazing. It's something we haven't done yet. And um, yeah, so that that's one. Certainly we do have a Boland's Python as well, uh, which is really cool Ooh. to see. Nice black shimmery snake. <laughs> and um, yeah, I would say one of the coolest. Papua New Guinea? Oh. Yes, that's correct. Are they... they yeah, Papua New Guinea, right? Yeah, I've seen them one mm -hmm. one other time in a zoo somewhere. I can't remember, but yeah, beautiful animal. Yeah, they're they're amazing animals, um, and generally not not too bad to work with. They're you know not something we have to worry about our faces when we go in. <laughs> um, <laughs> but one of one of our favorite exhibits, or I would say my favorite exhibit, is we have a group of diamondback terrapins, and I know you're going to talk about the conservation portion. Um, but we're kind of going on exhibits and animals. We work with the Georgia Sea Turtle Center on Jekyll Island, and we rear uh, 25 diamondback terrapins every year from hatchlings, from eggs recovered uh, from roadstruck turtles on, on the Jekyll Island Causeway. And um, we have them in a marsh habitat where visitors can see them and actually come back time after time over a period of a year and see their individual turtles you know, growing up over that time frame before we take them back down to Jekyll for release. And it is actually really cool. I've seen some members and their children, you know, coming back multiple visits asking, where's number 42? You know, so that one, even yeah. though it is, you know, not the rarest of species, I think it's a fantastic exhibit and really glad we get to part, you know, partner with the Sea Turtle Center on that program as well and, and actually show yeah. visitors the work that zoos can do and do. Yeah. How about, um, elapids wise? Do you have, do you guys have any elapids, any of the cobras or anything like that? We don't have a lot right now. Uh, we do have a red spitting cobra, uh, currently on habitat that visitors can see. And we have a, a group of Cape cobras that we are currently working with behind the scenes. They had been on it on habitat for a long time and we kind of rotate things from time to time to, uh, give other animals a chance to be seen by our visitors. So. Mm -hmm. But that's it right now. We don't have mambas or king cobras. Yeah. Great. And you said there's a, a, a kind of a separate building, but in the same area for Georgian natives. So what do you guys have snake-wise in there? We have uh, copperheads, and we actually just recently had a birth of a copperhead. It's the first, at least since I've been at the zoo, that we've had when actually trying to breed copperheads. We've had some others that we brought in um, as removals that gave birth in our quarantine. But um, this one, this was pretty awesome. The team worked really hard to cycle the, the snakes, you know, as naturally as possible. Um, there are, there's a mole king snake on habitat, which is surprisingly often visible. Um, huh. And let me think, what else? Actually, at the moment, I think that's what we have in that building. We do have other Georgia native snakes in other parts of the reptile habitats. We've got timber rattlesnakes, uh, corn snake, uh, pine snakes, uh, Louisiana pines and Northern pines on habitat as well. Yeah. Do you have diamondbacks or? We do have, uh, actually interesting story. We do have an Eastern diamondback. It is an albino, uh, that was collected in the wild down in South Georgia. Um, we got it a couple of years ago from, you know, through the Georgia DNR on a call. Um, it sounded like there was quite a hoopla about this snake and they just wanted to make sure it went to a safe place. So we do have this uh, very beautiful snake. Um, he's not currently on habitat and we're working on uh, ways we can try to get him on habitat because he is pretty unique. Um, normally uh, we're not too big on showing off like the albinos and the um, 
the morphs or things like that. Um, however, in situations where it's a really unique kind of wild occurring situation, um, we will, you know, display those if uh, an oddball opportunity arrives, which isn't very often. Mm -hmm. huh. Interesting. Well, last question about the zoo, and then let's let's start talking mm -hmm. about some of the conservation work. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So, I mean, obviously, just having these animals on display is, you know, there's conservation value in that. You're educating, you know, the visitors. But um, what is there? Are there other educational opportunities relative to, to snakes and zoo Atlanta? Do you do shows? Do you bring snakes out and walk around the zoo with them? Do you have people kind of on the floor talking to guests in the reptile house? How do you, how do you really, um, you know, work that snake education side of things? So we do have um, our ambassador and education teams really do the brunt of that work and they do a fantastic job. They'll be out, um, occasionally with live snakes out on grounds or other, you know, different animals, depending on the day and, and what they have planned. Um, but they do programs uh, talking about, you know, why, why snakes are good to have around, why you shouldn't kill snakes. Um, our keepers uh, team also does chats with the public uh, throughout the week on varying subjects. We do talks about uh, giant snakes, native snakes, um, talks about our Komodo dragons, things like that, just to really get people interested on a different level with the animals that they're seeing behind glass. Um, and yeah, I think we do a great job. Our education and ambassador team do offsite programs at different schools uh, with live herps as well. Um, unfortunately, I can't speak a ton to that. I don't have a lot of experience doing those with the zoo, but I know that's a pretty big program. And uh, yeah, I think I think our zoo does a great job, as most zoos do, with that having a personal face uh, of the the teams working with the animals, talking to uh, members of the public that may or may not have had that experience to either see a snake up close or really talk to somebody who's excited about snakes and you know and wildlife to help get them excited and help them want to you know preserve some of the biodiversity we have. Oh, okay, great. Okay, well, let's talk. Uh, let's let's transition and and talk about you know some of the conservation research work that we've been uh, alluding to through this conversation. Maybe I know you guys do and have done a lot of of different projects and been involved in different programs over the years. Maybe kind of give like before we start diving into some of them. Maybe kind of give a list of of the projects that you're working on or have been working on in the recent past. Just give them an okay. idea of the yeah. breadth. Yeah, I would say, gosh, um, you know, since I've been at the zoo both both times, <laughs> I'm a bit of a boomerang, as they say. Um, I left the zoo at one point and then came back. Um, yeah, the zoo has been involved with her conservation in particular and research. They've done uh, work with the Gopher Frog Program run through Georgia DNR, UGA, and uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service um, to do some reintroduction work for gopher frogs in southwest Georgia. They have been involved at various times uh, in the past, not super recently, but in the past involved in bog turtle conservation and research. Um, we've done some work with Hellbender uh, Research partnering with the Georgia DNR to do some survey work on populations in, in Northern Georgia. The Diamondback Terrapin work I mentioned before, which is also in partnership with Georgia DNR and the Georgia Sea Turtle Center, the head start and rear, um, you know, little terrapins for reintroduction or not reintroduction, I should say release. Um, gosh, uh, indigo snakes, of course, and I'm sure we'll get a little bit more into that. Uh, gosh, yeah. Um, and then of course, uh, the zoo is heavily involved in uh, our uh, folks at the zoo were heavily involved in the formation of both the Amphibian Arc and the Turtle Survival Alliance and um, have worked, you know, team members that are either still at the zoo or, you know, not at the zoo anymore, but were at the zoo during those times are still involved in, you know, heavily involved in turtle conservation um, and, of course, amphibian conservation and 
and research. We are also involved with Guatemalan beaded lizard uh, conservation. We do maintain an assurance colony at Zoo Atlanta of Guatemalan beaded lizards, and we are working with the National Zoo in Guatemala to try to export some of the genetics we have here down there back, you know, essentially to repatriate those genetics back to Guatemala uh, for their breeding and reintroduction program down there for the uh, critically endangered animal. So um, I'm sure there's a bunch I'm missing as well, but those are a few key ones. Oh, uh, work with the Elvaya Amphibian Conservation Center and Foundation EVAC down in El Valle, Panama. We've been working with them uh, essentially since they started back in 2005, 2006 to help conserve uh, and provide logistics for amphibian conservation down there uh, with the focal species being the Panamanian golden frog uh, and you know a handful of other, other critically endangered amphibians that we still stay heavily involved and uh, serve to help provide logistics funding when we can and uh, oftentimes even just emotional support <laughs> to help get through. Yeah. <laughs> Conservation is tough. <laughs> yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, amphibian, you know, ARC, and you mentioned um, assurance colonies, but you did it kind of in the context of beta lizards. But maybe let's focus in on kind of that issue, this like the global decline of amphibians and the role that, that zoos and Zoo Atlanta has played Um relative uh relative to that yeah for sure um you know a big part of you know the work that amphibian arc does uh briefly um it, for those folks that may or may not know the the group focuses a lot on uh you know assurance colonies and trying to be a stopgap for wild populations that are crashing due to uh whether it's disease, you know, a lot of people hear about the amphibian chytrid fungus uh, being a big concern, other diseases like ranaviral viruses, um, gosh, and so many others that we're finding out about now. Uh, that's a big, big part of their mantra is kind of providing a safety net of sorts uh, until wild, you know, issues yeah. can be mitigated. Obviously, some issues are easier to control than others. But, you know, I think that kind of work is really important and zoos have a very big role, you know, having the people that are specialized in doing that kind of thing and maintaining these animals, breeding these animals, uh, successfully providing them, you know, with good quality habitats to live in and reproduce in. So a big part of that is not just doing it, but also providing that expertise to the folks on the ground in, you know, whatever part of the world that is so that they can you know, basically do, uh, you know, take the expertise we have, combine it with the field knowledge they have of their own animals in country and really build the best, you know, facilities they can and then provide um, the logistical support and financial support to help make sure those programs work and that the animals are maintained and reproduced properly and then ultimately can be, you know, put back into the wild and hopefully, you know, survive and have the issues that they're dealing with mitigated to some degree. So I think zoos play an incredibly important role there, whether directly or indirectly through, you know, providing mm -hmm. those funding opportunities and or just, you know, sharing expertise. Yeah. And so to clarify, when you say an assurance colony, just for the listeners, um, that basically means you have, a, say, a species in the wild that for whatever reason, in the case of many amphibians, some of these disease issues where their populations are on the verge of extinction in the wild. And, and you know, so you're taking the remaining animals into captivity um, to assure that there's potential for that species to still exist into the future. Would that be a fair description of an assurance colony? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, one of the examples I, I like to give people uh, is the California condor program when that started uh, was essentially okay. bringing in, you know, what they knew of as the last of these birds um, to reproduce them, make sure they, you know, can make it to the next generation and the next generation and then getting them back out on the landscape uh, eventually. Yeah. So, 
you know, in particular with the amphibians that we're talking about, and you know, a lot of the, you know, say especially some of these Central American, South American species and these disease issues, it must actually just keeping them, uh, keeping that assurance colony must be nerve wracking to some degree, just from like a, I don't know, I guess you call it biosecurity perspective, um, uh, you, you know, because, you know, these animals could potentially get these diseases in captivity too. So how, how do you guys, how do you guys work to mitigate that threat? Thank you for listening to Snake Talk. If you like what you've heard on this podcast, you can help us by subscribing and leaving us a five-star rating. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions, be sure to leave us a review. Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> there's lots of protocols as far as quarantine. You know, we, we ad- adopt many of those same protocols even in, in zoological settings to ensure the safety of our own populations of animals, uh, as well as anything going back out of the wild. So um, I know, for instance, the facilities I have worked at in Latin America, the, the one I can give the most you know, examples of are the work at the EVAC Foundation um, in Panama. And that is there's a, a quarantine period of animals coming in. They're treated um, kind of prophylactically for uh, chytrid funguses just to kind of make sure they're not bringing anything in. Um, once they feel they're clear, they'll do PCR work as well. Then those animals, assuming they're healthy, uh, and look good and don't appear to have any other problems, they'll move into, uh, kind of, you know, a generalized, shouldn't say general population, but more or less, they'll move into another biosecure facility that has layers of biosecurity before you even walk in from outside, changing footwear, changing clothes, um, you know, various kinds of foot baths and disinfectants that are used to keep everything, you know, as clean as possible. Um, you know, even, the, you know, to a level of quarantine with food insects uh, that they cultivate to, to feed them. So there's definitely a lot of levels to keeping these guys, you know, safe. Yeah. Um, but at a certain point, there is also the, the time when it comes to put them out in the wild again, um, which some programs are at that stage, others are still trying to get there. And, uh, you know, just trying to give them the best chance possible when you do put them back out there that A, you know, they're not just going to uh, keel over and die, uh, that B, that, you know, you're also not going backwards and bringing anything out that could have snuck in into that population. So well, it's, it's so are we to the point of, well, first of all, on that, we'll just call it biosecurity. One thing that would strike me is not having all your eggs in one basket. And mm-hmm. I'm curious if you'll take these colonies and, you know, work with other zoos where you've got them distributed mm-hmm. at four or five places or whatever it might be, or do, are they typically these assurance colonies are in one place? Uh, it really depends on the program. So in, in some of the other, you know, out of out of the U.S. facilities that we've worked with, oftentimes there's only one facility um, doing that kind of work. So uh, there is a little bit of you know there's definitely a high risk there, um, just simply because of a lack of facilities uh, in, a, in a given place. Uh, with zoo programs, typically they are usually spread out. A lot of zoo programs are, um, you know, managed. Uh, there's programs called SSPs or Species Survival Programs. Um, or like the indigo snake program that's considered a safe program, saving animals from extinction, where you have kind of multiple steps to the program. So there's the population, like an SSP, maybe maintaining genetics and, you know, making sure there are, you know, animals within the population that it's well managed. Um, And then you have the safe programs, which are kind of tying into getting animals back on the landscape or managing a conservation aspect of whatever species, you know, the zoo may be working with. And those are typically managed through multiple institutions. It's not, not typically just one place holding all their eggs. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Well, let's shift gears and talk about, uh, snakes a little bit and let's talk about a project we've been working on together, uh, for quite a while, the, the Eastern Indigo snakes. And, you know, we're working, 
I mean, there's a lot of aspects to the recovery plan that, you know, this again, indigo snakes, as most people know, are, you know, listed under the Endangered Species Act. And as such, there's a recovery plan that kind of outlines an approach to um, hopefully someday taking the species off of the Endangered Species Act because it has recovered. Um, and there are a lot of components to that. But uh, where we've been working together is really in one particular uh, geography, you know, that region where, you know, kind of that Gulf region where, where the animals, you know, are extinct or at least functionally extinct in many places. And we've been trying to, to re uh, reestablish their populations at, at a number of sites. So uh, maybe, maybe kind of go back and take a look a little maybe a historical perspective in terms of how your involvement and how the involvement of, of Zoo Atlanta came into that aspect of indigo snake recovery and how that's kind of, uh, you know, evolved over time and, and where you guys sit today. Okay. Um, I'll do my best. Uh, you know, I was, I was not at Zoo Atlanta when we first got, got more heavily involved in the, uh, the reintroduction program. Um, that was Dr. Brad Locke who uh, really got us tied into it at that time, I believe in 2009 or 2010, working with the folks at Auburn University, uh, Dr. Craig Geyer, Jim Godwin, um, you know, those folks really uh, kind of getting that started. Uh, you as well, uh, Chris, with the, the Orient Society, um, really, you know, trying to get those reintroduction efforts going. And at that point, what was happening was we were working with the Georgia DNR and uh, John Jensen, um, essentially collecting a small subset of gravid females out of a population, letting them lay eggs. So those eggs were hatched and then reared uh, at the zoo for, I believe at that time it was about two years. Um, the goal was to get them large enough to have radio transmitters put in. Um, and certainly if I'm misspeaking, I know Chris, you've been involved way longer than I have. So jump in and correct me. Um, but yeah, just getting them to a point where they could be tracked and followed uh, post-release. And then uh, over time, as the Orion Society kind of grew, uh, the Orion Center for Indigo Conservation was developed in Florida, where the idea was basically have, you know, strong genetic stock and breed indigo snakes uh, so that there isn't that collection of gravid females and removing any from populations. Um or removing potential offspring from, from, you know, kind of already potentially hurting populations to begin with and taking those captive born, uh, snakes and getting them back out on the landscape after being reared for a period of one to two years, um, at the zoo and at the Orient center. And over time, it's, uh, just expanded a bit, uh, with a, you know, a couple other facilities starting to come online. And then, uh, yeah, at the zoo, we have been going, I think pretty strong for a bit. We had a little hiatus for a couple of years. Uh, we needed to change up the facility we were rearing the snakes in. Uh, at the zoo, we were previously using an old section of an older building. Um, and then we were able to use uh, fundings from, from Zoo Atlanta's Reader Conservation Endowment Fund to buy and install a new building specifically just for indigo snakes. And that's been fantastic. And uh, yeah, we're working on, I think, our third batch of snakes to be released out of that building, maybe fourth, uh, which is really exciting. And um, most days I'm the one that takes care of them and cleans up their, as you know, daily poops. <laughs> yeah, no. Oh. Uh, but, but yeah, it's all worth it, you know, to, to be able to get out there or, or send uh, team members out to go, you know, put the snakes back out on the landscape. It's, it's a pretty fantastic program. And I would say definitely one of yeah. the big highlights of my career to be able to work with that. Yeah, it is a great program. As you know, I mentioned the recovery plan earlier and, you know, to, to get this species uh, recovered and off the endangered species list, one of the things that we need to do is get them reestablished at multiple sites mm -hmm. in this region. And the head starting work, you know, that you guys are doing there at the zoo is absolutely critical because it helps you know helps those animals get a little bit of a, a head start before they go uh into the environment so uh what just curious in terms of the the husbandry uh what are you typically feeding these snakes and then how does that does that change 
um, as as you kind of uh, as we approach the release, or how does that all work? Uh, at this point, they get mostly a pretty standard, you know, uh, you know, captive snake diet, frozen thawed rodents, frozen frozen thawed quail, or uh, chicken checks, um, frozen thawed trout, and we just kind of try to rotate those around um, as we're feeding. In years past, we have tried um, using like tadpole, you know, wild collected tadpoles, baby turtles, um, you know, all the things a, a crazy wild indigo snake might eat. Um, but uh, over time, I think we've just found that at least for us, and I know there's still a lot of work going on, um, you know, with the folks at the OCIC, um, you know, working on kind of the prime captive indigo snake diet. Um, but for, for us, this seems to work. Um, the snakes seem to respond well and their indigo snakes, once they get started eating, they kind of never stop. So um, yeah, I think at, at some point we may look into some alternative diets, but I know uh, there's some good stuff going on at the OCIC to look into you know, how best to go about that. So yeah. fortunately I can't fully comment on that because I don't have all the data, but I know they're working pretty heavy on that. And, uh, mm -hmm. But yeah, then they, they eat a lot and we feed them a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, uh, let's focus in on one more conservation project before we kind of bring this episode in for a landing. And, and I think it's appropriate to stay within the squamates here. So uh, this beaded lizard project uh, in Guatemala has always fascinated me. I've been hearing about Zoo Atlanta's work with that going back you know, all the way to Brad Locke, who you mentioned earlier. And uh, so first of all, I mean, this beaded lizard is, is you know, pretty special. It's different in, in some ways in terms of the places it lives and as compared to some other beaded lizards. How would you just describe this lizard? Uh, first of all, why, what makes it so exceptional in terms of its conservation need and, and other aspects of its biology? Uh, well, you know, as with all... Uh, beaded lizards, you know, it is it is a venomous lizard, um, which I know, uh, I guess the historically viewed sense of venomous is a venomous lizard. Um, but they live in this very unique dry forest habitat in the Matagua Valley in Guatemala. They are pretty well isolated from any other population or species of beaded lizard. Um, even the other species that's found in, in Guatemala, the Black beaded lizard, Alvarez's beaded lizard. Uh, they don't really come close to the range of this one. And it is a large lizard. It's a key part of the environment there. It's a predator, um, mainly of eggs. Uh, so they do uh, help kind of manage some of the bird populations. And, um, and even they have a pretty close, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, a relationship with the Matagua spiny-tailed iguana, which is also critically endangered, that's also endemic to the Matagua Valley in Guatemala, um, with you know eating their eggs. Um, but they're a fascinating lizard that lives again in this really unique um, habitat, which I actually just got to visit for the first time uh, earlier this year, and it was kind of fascinating. I went at the peak of the rainy season, so I didn't actually get to see a dry forest. <laughs> <laughs> that I've been hearing about. Uh, it was very lush, very green, very wet. Um, but it, it is an amazing habitat, incredibly biodiverse um, habitat. And there's a reserve there, uh, the Reserva Heloderma Natural, which uh, is doing some great work, you know, managing a population of wild Heloderma or beaded lizards there and is working to just conserve them, monitor them, learn what they're doing, you know, naturally and and I think it's a great program. There's only about 500 beaded lizards estimated to be in the wild, which is a big increase um, from where they were about a decade ago. And a lot of that has to do with some of the work that was initiated with uh, the folks there on the ground in Guatemala, of course, and then Dr. Bradlock, uh, when he was here at Zoo Atlanta working on that program, instigated a lot of educational programs to help save uh the lizards, they were historically killed uh, because they are venomous and were viewed as kind of deadly. Um, so I think kind of changing some of those perceptions and working with the people, you know, on the ground to protect these animals, I think has been, it's been a fantastic program. And 
uh, it's nice to kind of get more involved with it and ultimately, you know, hopefully within the next few months, be able to repatriate some of these animals back to their homeland and get them involved in the conservation of their species again. So it's really exciting. Oh, great. Stuff. So it's, so the primary threats, one, obviously, it sounds like it has a very, you know, it's a rare endemic, got a small isolated range to start with, but then the mm -hmm. primary uh, threat to it is, is like direct human persecution. Um, and it's not, um, it, it's not necessarily from, a, a, you know, food or sustenance isn't driving that persecution. It's more of like fear of this venomous lizard is what drives it, it sounds like. And so, yeah, I think that's great. And it's actually a great way to kind of combine the expertise of a zoo like yours, meaning, you know, obviously zoos excel at, at communication and outreach and education. And so, you know, you can be down there educating communities, you know, training people to educate and then also doing that, that captive breeding and repatriation works. So that's mm -hmm. a, yeah, that's fascinating. Um, yeah. We're, what is that part? Oh, go ahead. I was just going to ask you, what was the, what's the status, like the IUCN red list status? Is it endangered, critically endangered? I believe it's critically endangered. Um, I would have to look that up. I know a lot of the lizards are in need of some some revision uh, at this point, but I believe it's critically endangered for, I believe what they have listed last time I looked was the Matagua Valley beaded lizard. Um, and that was when, that was prior to recent uh, genetic work actually spe fully speciating it out. And not gotcha. just having it listed as a subspecies. Okay. And then what were you going to say? I cut you off there. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say what there is uh, the National Zoo there in in uh, Guatemala, the La Aurora Zoo. Um, we are working very closely with them, you know, since they are involved in uh, having a breeding program to ultimately, you know, hopefully have offspring down the line, be able to go out for a reintroduction into the habitat. So. Uh, we're hoping again to get some some good genetic stock down there uh, that they don't have uh, represented so that there's a wider range of genetics when they do get to the point of releasing offspring or offspring of offspring they'll have the widest genetics possible without having to remove animals from the wild which is not definitely a goal they don't yeah. have yeah well that's great well, so what's, uh, we'll kind of wrap up this part of the episode. Uh, just uh, curious what you see as the future for uh, Zoo Atlanta, the herpetology program in terms of conservation and, and research. Is it kind of more of the same, continuing your commitment to these existing projects and programs, or do you have some new and interesting things on the horizon? Um, I think right now, definitely remaining committed to the programs that we have going. Um, you know, it's always, really, and I've been guilty of it forever myself, it's always great to jump in and want to get in on this new project, this new um, initiative. And while we're not certainly saying we're turning those down, we are trying to stay focused and really do the best at what we're already doing well and try to do it better and better. So I would say at this time, we don't have any, and I hate to say it, this is not a bad thing. We don't have any like holy wow, new, exciting uh, program. But I think in a way that's kind of a good thing in that we're focusing down and really trying to run the, the things we have going really well and the partnerships we already have in existence, just really keeping those strong. Um, is that to say we wouldn't sign up for something new uh, as it comes across our door? Absolutely not. Um, there are plenty of programs that I would absolutely love to get involved in uh, in the Southeast. Uh, at, a, at a higher level than we already are. And maybe at some point we'll get to do that. Uh, but right now, I think we just want to make sure we're doing the best by the programs we're already involved in. Yeah. And a lot of these programs, the type of projects we're talking about are very long-term mm -hmm. endeavors and they require people buckling down, as you say, and, and, you know, a commitment beyond just, um, you know, jumping around from new project to new project. So that's great. Well, uh, you know, I like to have, uh, everybody that, that I invite on here, uh, take a few minutes and, uh, tell me their best snake story. Do you have a good one for us, Robert? <laughs> oh, I'm sure I've got a few. Um, 
This one doesn't involve the zoo, which I'm sure you want a, a crazy zoo story. Um, but this is one I was out in the field uh, several years ago with a, a colleague and friend out at a timber rattlesnake site. And it was uh, birthing season. So, of course, there's just tons of baby rattlesnakes everywhere. Um, you know, we were doing counts and I was also, you know, at that point in time, I was really into photography. So I wanted some good photos of baby timber rattlesnakes and baby copperheads because they were also around all over. So uh, my friend and I, we kind of marked this spot. We see this beautiful yellow female timber just inside of a den or uh, under a rock crevice and a couple of babies right around her. So look at the area, make sure there's no other babies. Set down, you know, I get low on the ground. I've got my arm on a rock and I've got my camera, I'm going. And uh, get my pictures, you know, they turned out all right. Get up and my friend who had been really quiet this whole time, uh, after I get up, grab my gear and we get ready to move on, he goes, hey, uh, take a look at that rock you were just leaning on. And I looked down, sure enough, just so what, how well camouflaged these things are and probably also how excited I was to see and photograph these snakes. There was a baby cop copperhead on the rock inches from where my elbow was resting <laughs> and <laughs> certainly uh, woke me up for the rest of the day. <laughs> yeah, that's a great uh, but, story. But yeah, everybody was safe and, and you know, the, the, the snake never moved, didn't move at all while I was there. Um, I got incredibly lucky, but I always think about that story and, and a situational awareness forever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've got very similar stories, multiple. You know, I remember one, uh, I was with, uh, Dirk Stevenson, who I'm sure, you know, and, uh, mm -hmm. Javin, do you know Javin Bowder? He's been on the yeah. podcast. Anyways, he's out in Arizona now, but, uh, we were out in Idaho and we were photographing a great basin rattlesnake and all three of us took turns photographing it. And, uh, and then I think I was the last one if I remember right. And as I got up, you know, we had the one animal in front of us we were photographing and in a sagebrush, literally, like you said, you could see all of our knees were in the same place photographing <laughs> this animal, like one after another, you know, Dirk photographed it, then Jav and then me. And this coiled rattlesnake, Great Basin rattlesnake was just inches away. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and then I, uh, you know, I, now I'm turning this into, let me tell you all my snake stories, but, um, <laughs> How long one is last this podcast? one, <laughs> I know, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up after this one, but I came, uh, about as close as I've ever come to getting a, a venomous snake bite. I've had a handful of close encounters over the years, but this year was in the field and, you know, we monitor those timber rattlesnake sites you're talking about, you know, these high mountain sites mm -hmm. around Georgia and North Carolina. And, uh, so we were out and there was this one gravid female that we'd been, uh, visiting on occasion. And, and, you know, we're trying to figure out when she gave birth and, and she was kind of always, there was one main place where, where she was spending most of her time. And then, you know, there was maybe kind of this small area that, that we might expect her and we we're always seeing her. And so, came up sneaking up, you know, I'm using binoculars and stuff and moving real quiet and slow. And then I don't see her. So then I move around the whole area where she is. And then I'm coming down kind of from the top and I'm like watching that area. And, um, and I've got another, I've got a staff member with me. Uh, and she's just a little bit down the rock face and I, I'm coming down using the binoculars, looking where I expect the snake to be. And I slip and I fall, like oh, literally man. my feet go out from under me forward and I'm laying down and I'm just laying there on the rock laughing, kind of like laughing at myself, the staff <laughs> members laughing at me, you know, we're all having a good time. And, uh, and all of a sudden I hear a rattle and, uh, and, I'm like, where is that? And I realize it's so close to me. And I look down and the coiled female that we were looking for, she was coiled up literally an inch from my thigh. Like I slid down right Jeez. next to her. <laughs> she was in a place I had never seen her. And she was like coiling up and starting to kind of draw her head back. And, uh, 
yeah, that was, I, I rolled out of there. Yikes. I didn't get a bite, but anyways. Uh, oh, man. Yeah, yeah, there's so, so many of those that we all go through, you know, and it's, we laugh mm-hmm. about it because uh, everybody, you know, came out of it safe and sound and, and, you yeah. know, it's a, it's certainly, you know, just one part of the risk of what we do, you know, on a, on a daily basis, we can be in these situations, but, um, you know, laughing about it is one thing, but it's, uh, definitely can in the moment it is sobering. Very, <laughs> yes, very serious and sobering. Yeah. And I'm guessing you have, uh, you know, I mean, most of my close encounters with getting a venomous snake bite have come in captivity and mm-hmm. uh, it's very rare to have one like that in the wild. So I'm guessing you working in a zoo experience that with yourself or others, you know, just, it's, a, it, it's just a higher probability environment of, of getting into trouble. But anyways, we don't need to go into that for the sake of time. We'll, we'll begin <laughs> to wrap it up here, but, um, but yeah, uh, yeah, I appreciate you coming on today, Robert. Appreciate all you do for, conservation of reptiles and amphibians in this state and beyond and uh look forward to continuing to work together in the future absolutely thanks so much for having me on it's been a blast great and i just wanted to thank the audience and tell everybody to remember snakes are animals too and it's a privilege to see one in the wild